Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Andy Johnston and this is a show that takes a deeper look at the stories that are making the news this week and a wider view on Irish and international business and politics. We'll be keeping you company for the next hour and we're going to start today's show by looking at the current issues that are facing medication supply. I'll be speaking to Cathy Marr of the IPU about how you can protect yourself from buying counterfeit drugs online. We'll also delve into the state of the Irish housing market in exploring the impact of the bank of mum and dad and also looking at the growing reliance on property inheritance and the large deposits that people now have to pay for mortgages. Are we going to see a shift that's actually moving us away away from ownership, more towards a rent-focused market, where really only the wealthy can truly aspire to home ownership in Ireland. And finally, as the UK marks the three-year anniversary of its exit from the EU, we'll be asking if the country is living up to the golden age that was once promised by Conservative leaders. Now, in recent weeks, the HSE have taken steps to allow doctors to see what medicines are currently available to treat the surge in winter respiratory infections. This follows on from concerns that they've had about delays that patients have had in getting access to medication. But what else needs to be done to prevent this type of supply issue being seen across the country? To discuss this now uh, and to discuss the delays in getting medicines, uh, I'm joined now by Cathy Marr, who's chair of the IPU Pharmacy Contractors Committee. Cathy, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mandy. Now, just start us off by telling us and explaining to us exactly what are the difficulties in the supply chain now and are there particular types of medicine that you're having a problem getting access to? Yeah, the supply chain has been challenging for a number of years and we anticipated there would be problems with the impact of Brexit and then we had the pandemic where a lot of manufacturing of some medicines halted during the pandemic because actual plants shut down for a period of time. And some supply of some medicines has been quite intermittent and challenging over the past number of years. But we've seen it come to real media attention in recent weeks and months, clearly because um, the respiratory medicines have been, there's been a much higher demand for respiratory medicines, such as over-the-counter medicines that people would buy with that prescription, and also prescription medicines. And that's because there are higher levels than usual of circulating illness. Shortages are managed in a pharmacy, but it does place a great burden of work on the pharmacist and their teams. But they're also managed within the HPRA, which is the medicines regulator, through our wholesale distribution. And then we want to try and call on Department of Health and see how can we look at it in the longer term, because shortages aren't going to ease up in the foreseeable future. Okay, but I'm hearing from you, Cathy, that this isn't um, a problem that's specific to now. It's something that you've had to manage for quite some time but is it there just a confluence of things coming together that seem to be making it particularly bad and again what type of medicines is it affecting? What are people struggling to try and get hold of? The prominent ones at the minute would be certainly antibiotics, um, oral steroids. So antibiotics would be used to treat bacterial infections and a lot of the respiratory illnesses that we're seeing are bacterial in nature. So antibiotics, particularly liquid ones, the ones that we need a spoon for, um, they have been quite difficult to get in various strengths and various actual raw ingredients. Um, and that has been a case where it's been a real, there was a raw ingredient shortage initially and then demand outstripped supply. And this isn't just an Irish problem. Mm. This is Ireland, UK, European wide and some instances the globe. And then we've also seen with steroids, which would be used to treat any inflammation within 
the body, but particularly in respiratory conditions as well. Some painkillers and then some long-term medicines. There have been some injectables, maybe for diabetes. We, you might remember back more prominent in the spring of last year, some HRT products, and that was quite prominent, some shortages then. So it has been an ongoing issue, um, and it does put a great burden of work, as I said. It's many hours are spent a week trying to either source stock if something is completely unavailable, we try and source unlicensed stock, which is a medicine that doesn't have a license for use in Ireland, or also we're trying to rationalise the stock that we have to make sure that our patients don't um, become distressed or don't aren't left without. Ultimately, as healthcare professionals, both ourselves and prescribers, mm. patient outcomes, positive patient outcomes, and effective patient treatment is what we need, and um, that's our goal with all of this. So we're working really hard to make sure that the patient is the last person to feel the burden of these shortages and that that has to be the outcome. One of the other areas that struck me that's affecting this really badly is that issue of pricing. So I just wanted you to explain this for our listeners. Um, it's what we pay is less, so they give us less, in essence, is how I'm taking it. But can you just talk us through how the, the pricing mechanics work in terms of supplying at source? Historically, Ireland, maybe a couple of decades ago, would have had a high price of medicine set and the price of medicines are set by the Department of Health, the government and the manufacturers with an agree- in an agreement um, and pharmacy fees are unrelated to the price of medicines. However, evidence would suggest that as, as prices of medicines decrease, medicine shortages can increase because that's basically if Ireland is such a small market in the global context, it's more advantageous for certain suppliers to either export out of Ireland or to divert their stocks as well as the global manufacturers might divert their stocks or their, their products to other EU markets where prices are higher. That, that's basic economics. And we have seen that happen, particularly with older medicines that have quite a low price in Ireland. And then, obviously, companies may divert those stocks to, to another country. What can happen with some of those older products is there might not be an equivalent that we can interchange or mm. we can switch that patient to some medicines would have what we call interchangeability. So we, as pharmacists, being the clinical medicines experts, we can directly switch a patient from one generic to another of the same molecule um, if they're on the interchangeable list. But if a medicine doesn't have a generic or doesn't have a direct switch, we are, we are left then with a critical problem for that patient. And then we need then to switch the patient to another safe, effective therapeutic alternative. Mm. The difficulty there, and this tends to happen more so with patients with long-term conditions, not really with the acute respiratory illnesses that we're seeing at the minute. But what happens there is I must then refer back to a prescriber. And we know that the prescribers are under intense pressure. They really are under a lot of, of stress and strain and, and you don't really have the time to be dealing with medicine shortages in the, the quantities that we have. I must refer back to prescriber and recommend or seek an alternative treatment and then wait for a prescription to come back to me then. It may be a couple of hours if it's a local GP and we can do it via health mail, the encrypted email service used. Or it may be that I need to send that patient back to a consultant and that might take days or weeks. So you can see then what is beginning to suffer then is the patient treatment and the therapeutic outcome. Pharmacists are clearly marked as the medicines experts. That's what we do. Um, and we would call on the government to introduce something called a serious shortage protocol which would allow pharmacists to use their clinical skills to actually safely switch a patient from one product, one medicine, to another that is used to treat that condition. Mm. And that would avoid any delay or interruption in the patient treatment. 
And that's really looking at things at a long-term strategy. We know globally medicine shortages are a problem and will continue to be a problem. And we need government to look at a long-term strategy and how we deal with this using our clinical skills, our expertise, expertise as pharmacists and making sure the patient treatment and the patient outcomes aren't interrupted. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Cathy Marr, who's chair of the IPU Pharmacy Contracts Committee, and we're talking about a shortage of medicine supply. Cathy, just picking up on that point that you made about giving maybe pharmacists more powers to prescribe alternatives to patients without actually going back to their GP. But there might be a fear at government and at regulatory level that in terms of dealing with um, a short-term supply issue, you're actually creating more problems by, you know, allowing people at the pharmacy level to to kind of, not second guess, but maybe, um, you know, kind of prescribe things that a GP may not necessarily do, having access to all of the medical history from a particular patient. What would you say to that argument? I suppose to pick up on a couple of bits there, um, Mandy. Firstly, pharmacies tend to be the place where the most accurate patient med- medication record is held. We think of someone who may visit their GP, they may visit their respiratory consultant, they may visit their endocrinologist or their women's health expert. Wherever they go, they tend to use, and we always recommend patients do use the same pharmacy because that's where we have a complete picture. Um, There isn't an electronic solution and not everyone links up in the ideal world they should, but it doesn't always happen. So pharmacies do tend to have the complete medical record in terms of the medicines. But if we cast our minds back to when HRT had significant shortages last April, May and intermittent throughout the summer as well and it may happen again. What was happening there was I, if a woman was presented with a prescription for a certain form of oestrogen I may have been in patch, the transdermal patch form and that wasn't in supply, I would have had to switch her to gel. So the dose was exactly the same but the preparation was different. It was a gel form rather than a patch. I had to go back to the prescriber. Mm. And maybe a month three, month two, maybe month three, a different patch was available and the gel wasn't available. So I would have had to switch back to another patch and go back to prescriber. But they were all dose equivalent. The form was different, but I would have been able to switch that only for not having a serious shortage protocol. Mm. The serious shortage protocol is to deal with acute shortages. So the patient treatment isn't interrupted. It's not to permanently switch someone to or re-prescribe a medicine. It's done under protocol. It's been very successful in other jurisdictions such as the UK that have effectively dealt with serious shortages when they happen and then when supply resumes, the protocol is lifted and that's how it would work. It's not looking at overtaking someone else's powers, but it's actually all working with the same outcome of patient benefit. Has that protocol ever been used in this jurisdiction? No, it hasn't been effective, hasn't been enacted. Um, it would require legislative change, but that can happen. And we would call on it happening sooner rather than later because, as I said, medicine shortages, it is a global problem. It is an EU problem and it's certainly an Irish problem as well. And we just, it's not going to go away. We do need to look at a long-term strategy and ultimately looking at what we can do for our patients. Certainly the respiratory illnesses that have happened in recent weeks, the increased demand for certain medicines such as antibiotics, steroids, some nebules that people put into nebulizers to aid their breathing and painkillers. That has really brought it to the fore again, made it more prominent and just shows how challenging the day-to-day can be. But these shortages are happening for so many long-term conditions as well and we would like to be able to make sure those patients are looked after as well as we can. Mm. 
Cathy, beyond the, the protocol and the immediate problems that the government and pharmacies and indeed, you know, patients are facing. Um, is there something in the longer term that the HSC, the Department of Health and the government need to do to address this supply issue, but better contracts? I saw uh, Sandra Gannon, the managing director of Azure Pharmaceuticals, talking about this pricing issue. Is there a, you know, something more that the government need to do to tackle the issue? Well, everybody is working really hard to try and tackle the acute crisis that we're facing at the minute. And I suppose to raise your patience, first and foremost, that we are all working really hard to try and make sure that supply and distribution is fair and equitable. So our wholesalers actually are um, currently undertaking allocation model for many medicines. And what that means is that they will supply in any given month a quantity of a medicine based on what I'd used or what any pharmacist had used in the previous month or the month before. And that's to try and make sure that every pharmacy, there's only two primary wholesalers in Ireland, and we're all, all mm. 1,900 of us are ordering from the same two wholesalers two to four times every day. So it's to try and make sure that we all have fair and equal distribution of medicines. We are asking the HPRA do try their best to make sure that we have notification in advance of when a medicine is anticipated to go into short supply, whether there's a, a raw ingredient shortage or a manufacturing problem or a supply chain problem. And then we'd also like to see prompt um, reassurance of when a product was is due back in stock at estimated date. It does happen sometimes, but it doesn't always happen. So we'd like to see whether it be six weeks, six months, uh, un, you know, not estimated or no return date given. So then we can manage with a degree of confidence mm. what do we do with that patient? Do we switch them temporarily to something or do we have to actually completely change a product and medicine and we change the treatment path? And that's fair enough. And that's, and that's such a small thing. It really comes down to communication but it can make a huge difference for you guys in terms Absolutely. of planning. Yeah. And it might come from, you know, most of the big pharma have the European, you know, their, their headquarters are in different parts of the world. So sometimes it's just a communication issue from, from one big pharma to our HPRA, from HPRA to ourselves to wholesale. And HPRA are working with stakeholders such as manufacturers, wholesale, HSE, prescribers and ourselves to try and get as best a picture as possible. But then when we see something like the respiratory illnesses where there was such a demand for mm. antibiotics and we didn't have the supply, we didn't have the supply of penicillins and we knew we did anticipate that was going to happen with maybe about a week, 10 days before. But what happened then was everyone switched over the same to time, a different yeah. antibiotic. <laughs> so supply of product B or product C, everything ran out. So that's where something in the longer term, a serious shortage protocol would kick into place when we could anticipate something like that happening. Go, right, here's the protocol. Here's how we switch. Here's the products we use. And if that goes short, we do B, C, D, E. And then when supply re- resumes, that protocol dissolves. Yeah, you can you can manage the product much better. Cathy, just a final and brief word for me on this. I know that's something that a lot of people are struggling with. A friend of mine told me he couldn't get Calpol for his children at the weekend. So I just want to leave with a bit of advice, please, for people, if I can. If you can't get access to a certain type of medication in your pharmacy, lots of people end up going online. Can you just give us a bit of advice about what you should do if your pharmacies just run out of stock on the product that you need? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, we want to reassure patients because... Pharmacists are best placed to maintain patient confidence in their medicine and that's what we have to make sure people maintain that the confidence in the medicine is there. We can offer alternatives of something like Calpol or something that's available without prescription. We can offer an alternative. If it's a complete case that your local pharmacy does not have any in stock, they can advise when it will be back in stock or can recommend where to go to. 
if you find that you need to buy medicines over the counter online, so medicines available without prescription online, they must be registered. So they must be they must display that they're safe and um, legally allowed to sell medicines without prescription. So they will display a certain logo or trademark on their website to make sure that the medicine that you're buying does have that. Prescription-only medicines are not legally sold in Ireland on online, so online pharmacy is not legal. So to ensure that patients do not buy medicines that they need a prescription for online, the vast majority of those come in from a different country and very often are either counterfeit or certainly not what they say on the tin. Yeah, people need to be really careful about that, don't they? Just the dangers of going online and getting a product that is not even um, remotely like what what you're used to taking. And so when people go online, what exactly should they look out for? Usually, if you're buying a medicine that is available without prescription, so an OTC medicine, make sure it's from a recognised pharmacy in Ireland and it has the pharmaceutical society, the PSI logo at the bottom, it has to have that to ensure that it's been fit for purpose for sale online. If it's a medicine that requires a prescription, it is not legally sold into Ireland online and that in itself is a warning, an alarm bell, that there might be something wrong when this comes in. But really the first and foremost is get patients, people just to pick up the phone, speak to their local pharmacist and see what do I do? Either I'm worried about my long-term medicine, is the supply shortage, is it intermittent, is it guaranteed? But certainly don't stockpile. If mm. you stockpile your medicines at home. Just making then, problems for somebody else then. Yeah, it's possibly making problems for somebody else. It's, it's damaging supply to other patients. But also medicine safety is a big problem and accidental poisoning is a big problem. So we would certainly say stockpiling is one of the biggest risks in medicine safety. So certainly not stockpiling medicines and just have what you need for the current months, maybe current months to six weeks, and that's fine. Most shortages are intermittent in supply and most can be managed over a short enough period of time. If there is a significant shortage, we will get in touch with our patients that need it on prescription and we will look at um, what's the long-term or the medium-term um, way of addressing that. Okay. So the first thing is patients just pick up the phone and speak to the pharmacist. We're all extended hours. We're all at the end of the phone. Um, most of us are open Saturdays, if not Sundays, late nights. So we're always there, so just pick up the phone and chat to us. Great. Well, Cathy, that's very sound advice and I'm sure it will be useful to many of our listeners. That's Cathy Marr, who's chair of the IPU Pharmacy Contractors Committee. Cathy, thank you for joining us today. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, with the housing cost in Ireland the highest in the EU, the property ladder has been kicked from under thousands of people. So how do we get here and how do we break the cycle? Find out after the break. Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, according to many observers, millennials are the first generation in Ireland to be worse off than their parents, trapped in a game of rental roulette, stuck in homes as adults, and many of them are on the brink of homelessness. The Irish housing crisis has defined the lives of an entire generation, according to many, and it's set to continue. But today, we just wanted to look at a different aspect of it and focus on who exactly is going to have access to properties if and when they are built. So to discuss this now, I'm joined by Carl Dieter. Carl, you're very welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. Thanks for having me on, Maddie. Now, there's few people or families in Ireland who are not caught up in this in some way. Um, much of the recent debate 
that we've had here in Ireland is about the housing market and it's always centred around supply. But I want to look at who can actually afford to buy those houses once they're built. You want to have pretty steep pockets, wouldn't you, Carl, just to click on the for sale section of daft.ie to even start thinking about getting on the property ladder in Ireland? Well, I I guess you you have to put that in context. There's a lot of people who access housing, you know, they don't have a lot of money, but they still get housing because we have hundreds of thousands of social houses. Uh, We built 30,000 houses in 2022, and a lot of them are going to go into social and affordable housing because it was approved housing bodies who who bought them. Uh, Equally, wages have been doing quite strong in Ireland. Average wage for full-time workers is around €45,000. Which, if a couple are buying a house, gives them a ninety thousand um, a year income as a household, and with the new central bank rules, that means that they can actually borrow about three hundred and sixty thousand. So, there's things that are improving. The issue with on the supply. I mean, let's not forget, six years ago, we were writing articles in the newspaper about having to knock down houses because we had ghost estates and things. So, we don't ever do a job really of getting that balance right, and I think that's problematic. Mm. But the country as a whole, we tend to build. For the, in the, for the most part, good quality housing and we're increasing the amount of it that we build and we are striking a better balance about the amount that can go to regular um, you know, home buyers and people who, who would never be able to afford a home. So I think that that's an important distinguishment or, or it's important to distinguish. I don't think distinguishment is a word actually. It's important to distinguish that is that there are good things happening too. They just don't happen as quickly as we might like them and they're not as, they don't make the sexy headlines. No, but who, and I, I, I take what you're saying and I accept what you're saying on the supply side that there is social and affordable housing and that is part of the stock that's provided. But let's just talk about the private sector and who's buying those houses, who can even access that. So just just look at, say, the first-time buyers section um, and sector. What what would be the main obstacles for somebody to even get on get on the, the road to a mortgage and securing their first home? What, what do they have to fulfil and overcome? Well, I guess they have to make sure that they have the ability to, to repay a loan. So even if, even if say, if you owned the Taj Mahal, Mandy, and you said, I want to get a mortgage on that, but you had no income, people won't lend anything to you, even though the Taj Mahal is, is considered priceless. Because you have to show an ability to be able to service the debt of the loan that you're undertaking. So you need to have an income, and that's an important thing. There are some loans where you don't have to have an income, but they're mainly aimed at much older people and they're used more in a kind of a a pension type of way. Uh, The other thing is you have to have some skin in the game. So you've got to put down a deposit of at least 10% as a first-time buyer. That can be difficult. Uh, There are schemes to help with that. There is a a help-to-buy program. Uh, Quite often people get family help. There's special types of savings accounts with some of the banks. So, there's all these different things there that, that, that help with that. There's even a new uh, home home loan uh, equity scheme that has been brought out. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff there to help people get their first house. There's oh. not as much then for people who might have a house that's not appropriate. So you could have a family of four living in a one-bed apartment. We, we don't really do, you know, have a lot for them. But, but there's some good stuff out there. Yeah, so let's unpick that. Um, what What is the average price uh, of a house now in Ireland and how has that shifted over I- in recent years? So the, the average price is, is different in all different parts of Ireland. So, I mean, average prices in Dublin will be much higher than they are, uh, you know, say in Longford. So, you know, in, 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 in a capital city where you'd have the highest paid jobs, you know, the, 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 highest, uh, the highest incomes, 
you're going to see that number be be much higher. And, you know, it's probably up, I actually don't have the CSO figures to hand, but as I recall, it's up around something like mid 400,000s. But then when you talk about areas that might be in the Midlands, it can still be down below 200,000. So we don't actually have a housing crisis everywhere in the country. We do have a housing crisis in in the high demand areas, and that, that can be problematic. And then the cost of providing those homes within those areas can be quite high. But it's not always as if it's just the construction costs, because Ireland is actually fairly equal to most of Europe when it comes to what's known as the prime cost, which is just the labor and materials. So there's other factors at play which drive up the cost of housing as well, and, and, and that's an issue. Mm. And, and it's not an easy one to fix because it, it calls into concern the way we approach, say, planning, the way we approach delays to obtaining planning. So in Ireland, if you're trying to build 100 houses, you can be pretty sure it's going to take you four years and probably some kind of appeals, possibly even a court process to get to that stage. I have a little brother. He's building 100 apartments in Arkansas. They got the permission to build that, and I think about four weeks, and they just, you know, get break ground and get building, and they don't have a housing crisis there. Mm. Uh, so the way that you approach your housing market, you know, that also is an impact. And it's actually the, the existing homeowners who tend to be the ones who slow it down for those who don't have. So the have and the have-nots in this country is really, a, a, you know, it's, it's, it's not really about the, the ultra-wealthy versus the, the ultra-poor. It's about the middle-class people who don't want to share the amenities of their own home area with newcomers. Mm. Uh, and, and that's something that's very disgraceful and somewhat unique to Ireland. But look, my hope is that with enough housing and building activity that we'll, we'll get around that just by creating sufficient supply where and when it's possible. Well, yeah, there's no doubt that NIMBYism and regulation is, is badly affecting the supply side, but I want to go back to that issue of accessing um, uh, mortgages and the ability to buy for, from from different demographics, if you like. So just let's look at those figures and take the higher figure that you mentioned there of average cost of a, of a property, say in Dublin, 400,000. So 10% of a deposit required for that, you need 40,000. So there's a certain group of people who will not be able to access that. And this is where this question arose during the week, I suppose, about the people who inherit money to buy property and even the bank, the people who can avail of the bank of mom and dad. Um, is there a, a, a kind of two-tier system developing where there's a certain p- group of people who will have access to things like mortgages and things like their first-time home and then there's a group of people who just won't ever have access anymore? Yeah, so I, I guess one of the biggest biggest uplifts a person can have in life is two parents. Um, and this is this is now, I'm talking about economic fact. I'm not talking about what people want to hear or what's considered correct or nice to say. It is a fact that one of the biggest indicators of poverty in a, in a, in, for a child is to be raised by a person on their own. That is a fact, and that is why, you know, we should always promote two-parent households, whether it's man, woman, 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 I don't really care. Two is better than one when it comes to raising children in terms of economic outcomes, and that is known across the world. So... You could have a person who says, you know, I don't have someone who can pass on wealth to me because I was an orphan. I grew up with an evil stepmom. Whatever the case is, that is tragic. But for those people who do grow up with two parents or, you know, who grow up with one parent who happens to be quite well off, and that can happen too, it's actually happening more because there are highly successful women who are having children on their own and choosing to to do it on their own. Uh, You know, that passing on of wealth 
it, it is one of the ways in which a nation becomes more wealthy. It's the accrual of wealth through generations. And so what happens is, with highly developed nations, you see a lot more of it with countries that they might be coming through that process or, or they, they're starting to turn into more developed nations. That, uh, that is very early on in, in terms of their overall development. Because there's some countries that don't even allow people, you know, to own property in, a, in the way that we associate. In other words, you can't own it and pass it on. And one of the ways that countries develop economically is by establishing the right to own property establishing the ability to do that because then people have an asset they have something they can pass on that they can borrow against to start a business or you know yeah and, and I, small... I i accept that but if if we're talking about um an ev- uh, an evolution in our society where more people do not have access to owning a property then the balance of our society is shifting and just to go back to your earlier point about you know it's a fact that two parents raising a child means that they will be more successful economically. Whilst you may have those statistics, uh, I don't accept that. I, I was raised by a single parent and I didn't do any worse because of it. And I'm sure there's lots of other people who are like me, not just from the middle class, from the working class as well. So I absolutely have to just make my point on that. But 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 yeah. more, I want to... But I, Andy, I just want to be clear. I accept your point. And obviously, I don't know whether the parent was your mother or your father or, or even someone who wasn't related to you. They obviously did a great job. Thank you. And good for them. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that if you replicate your, your life story to a thousand times or a hundred thousand times and you look at the hundred thousand Mandy's, I'm telling you now statistically, and these statistics are based on flesh and blood people, that the likelihood of poverty in those other 99,999 kids is far higher than if you compare it to a cohort who are raised by two parents. Well, look, I mean, it was one of the main arguments for, for why marriage equality was such a great idea. It's, you know, to say, like, if you can ever get two parents into a yeah. family, splitting that splitting that important duty towards these kids, it's a wonderful thing. Yep. And, you know, and it can be changed. It can be taken because of marital breakup or, or relationship breakup or death or a host of other reasons. And it, it's, you know, it's never... Nothing is ever ideal, but statistically, and the statistics are based on real people, one parent raising a child usually has worse economic outcomes. Well, and, and all I'd say is you, you owe a big thanks to whoever the person was in your life. Like yeah. I said, they obviously did a great job. Thank you. Much and all as I'd like to spend the entire time talking about myself, uh, I better move on and talk about what we're here to discuss. So there was a central report, a central bank report that was out this week, the long and the short of it. It was about inherit, inheritance and wealth in Ireland. And it did reveal some kind of interesting um, aspects of who inherits what and how much value there is in a kind of the 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 entire area in terms of inher- inheritance. Do you want to talk us through some of that? Yeah. So what we see is that in, inherited wealth is an important part of uh, overall wealth in Ireland, and we've seen a, a big rise of it since uh, you know the 1960s. For the most part, it comes from parents, and for the most part, it also comes in the form of either uh, a dwelling house or land. Um in an increasing sense over the last kind of 20 years, you are also just seeing cash money play a larger role. Um, but, and, and certainly uh, securities or shares, with, you know, like stocks, things like that, are starting to play a bigger role. But in Ireland, the, the, the type of inheritance that passes from one group to another, again, it, it tends to be land. You see this throughout rural Ireland in the form of farms passing one one generation to the next, which again, I'd say is a good thing. It's a family business. Mm. It keeps thriving. It's part of a 
what makes this country wonderful is uh, our, our agricultural output is excellent, and then also uh, homes. But there are, by the way, there's a lot of rules around homes. Like you can't just like give someone a house and oh yeah, roll off into the sunset. Like we also have a big tax system which collects on that. So the people who inherit, well, you can say that not everybody gets the, the same access to, to, to parents, and it largely is parents passing down wealth. When they do, there's limits put on that, and it's also taxed at a rate that is, you know, 60% higher today than it was 10, 12 years ago. Hmm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Carl Dieter, who's founder and CEO of onlineapplication.com and director at yes.ie. Carl, um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about um, the access to mortgages um, that, that people might have. How, how are we faring there in Ireland and how do we compare to maybe other member states? Is it easy now in Ireland to, to get a mortgage? Um. Well, it's, it's never easy, and it's not meant to be. So, like, what you don't want is the kind of thing we had in 2005 and six, where you rock up somewhere and they say, are you alive? Yes, here, have a mortgage. Uh, we, we made a lot of, uh, you know, um, in, everywhere in the system, there were a lot of mistakes made back then. Yeah, but so did, did you brought in. just on that one, did, did, there were rules brought in, and they're one of the things I was talking about earlier. Do you ever think that they went too far in the other direction where there was an element of social engineering which kind of blocked people out of mortgages forevermore that if you if you had something... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Look, when these rules were brought in, you had a lot of people, mostly academics, who were saying, this is wonderful, you know, this will set the country on a great path. We won't see house prices go crazy again because this will inhibit them. And I was saying, like, this is a mistake. This is a huge mistake. You, you, this is being done the wrong way because, A, it doesn't fix house prices. We saw the evidence of that from Asia. We saw the evidence from that from other nations. I wrote to the central bank. I have a whole paper on it where I was saying, the way you're doing this, it, it's wrong. You should base it on the person. Not only that, but uh, in, in the USA, uh, in Harvard, they did a study on the difference between uh, black people and white people in America and looking at their wealth. And the biggest indicator of difference between their wealth was was actually years of home ownership. It mm. made a bigger difference than than university education, which blew my mind because I was like, "Wow, I that's that just was." I never thought I'd hear. I never thought I'd read something like that. That home ownership was making a bigger difference to people's wealth than than if you went to university or not. And not only that, they did the same study twice, and they showed that even after the crash it had a bigger positive uplift. One of the biggest ways to get a population wealthy is to allow them to accrue wealth. And one of the biggest ways that populations do that is through home ownership. So I don't see home ownership as just being a roof over your head. I see it as being one of the intrinsic tools that takes people from being at the bottom and helps them get up to the middle or maybe even the top. Because we have to remember for all the talk of, you know, poverty in Ireland, or there's always bad things happening in every country everywhere. By and large, the trend is that people are being lifted higher and higher uh, in economic status. And, you know, they, they're, they're starting off lower and they're moving higher through their lives. Mm-hmm. So that's a really common trend. It's a good trend. It allows people to advance. And when you strip out their ability to own a home, you strip out their ability to advance. Therefore, I think anything that inhibits that too much is wrong. So I actually did disagree with those rules when they first came out. Yeah, well, Carl, unfortunately, we've run out of time today, but we might come back to you again to talk about, uh, you know, how things, how you see things shaping up as we move 
towards a more rental based society but for now I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there that's Carl Dieter founder and CEO of onlineapplication.com and director at yes.ie Carl thanks so much for being with us today All right, Maddie. Up next breaking bad on Brexit three years on has the UK's exit from Europe enhanced or diminished their place in the world Now, finally, you're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. And for many years, at least according to many, the British government have enjoyed an unrivaled reputation for economic prudence, political stability and respect for the rule of law. But following years now of rancorous political discourse, social division, rolling political scandals and catastrophic economic mismanagement, uh, the extreme nature of what's been happening in British uh, commentary and and political life has beleaguered the Tory government and the impact of Brexit has wrecked perhaps irredeemably the reputation that was enjoyed by a once imperial global force. We're joined now by Hannah Ziodi who is a writer for CNN Business and she's based in London where she covers markets, economies and companies across Europe. You're very welcome Hannah to the show today. Hi Mandy, thanks for having me. Now, I was just thinking, it's actually 10 years ago since David Cameron gave that very famous speech in Bloomberg, uh, which started started us all on this roller coaster, um, a politically motivated ambition of his that you could say has certainly backfired. But what do you think, looking at this, uh, has been three years on the impact of the UK leaving the European Union in a kind of general sense on the British economy, first of all? Well, the numbers uh, don't leave one feeling very encouraged. So, um, of course, it's been two years, I suppose, since the Brexit deal, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, as it's known, came into effect. That was, well, it was signed on Christmas Eve 2020 and came into effect on the 1st of January 2021. And as I say, all the numbers kind of suggest that it's left the UK economy worse off. So, Firstly, the UK is the only G7 economy, so that's the group of advanced economies that includes Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the US. It's the only one whose economy is still smaller than it was before the pandemic. And uh, just to put that into perspective, so in the third quarter of last year, UK GDP, the UK economy, was 0.8% below its pre-pandemic size. The Eurozone was uh, 2.2% larger than its pre-pandemic size and the United States 4.4% larger. So that's one area. Um, You know, if you look at investment, uh, business investment is also down on where it was before the pandemic. The pound is about 17% weaker than it was uh, since the referendum. And that sort of takes into account all the years of uncertainty over what Brexit would mean, what what the deal would look like. That means the pound has taken a beating. That's made imports more expensive. So that stokes inflation. But it hasn't helped exports, which you would expect it to do, because when a currency weakens, it can often be good for exporters. Mm. UK export volumes are actually down as well. Um, and that has has uh, disproportionately hurt smaller companies rather than bigger companies. So at if you just look at some of the numbers, it's, it's not very encouraging. <laughs> no, like as you just, you know, listed off 
every single barometer from an economic sense, they have gone backwards, not forwards. So that promise of a new golden era really hasn't arrived in any kind of economic sense in terms of performance. Let's talk a little bit about the structural differences that may have been affected by Brexit. So things like labour shortages, how has it affected their their labour market? It's definitely made labour shortages worse. Um, and and in particular, particularly in sectors such as healthcare, agriculture, retail. Um, so, you know, there were actually a record number of uh, immigrants into the UK last year who were granted working visas, but not necessarily in the areas uh, that the UK economy needs them to be in those areas that I've listed. And of course, we know uh, what some of the, you know, the effects of, of shortages in the NHS is, is having on, on the ability of, of people in the NHS to deliver the, the quality of care that they would like. Um, so it's, it's definitely made that problem worse, the problem of labour shortages. And that, um, again, has a, has an impact on the productive capacity of, of the UK economy. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, as I say, it's, it's weighed on those, weighed on particularly on healthcare, agriculture and retail. And, and businesses in those sectors have been saying for some time now that they need uh, the government to do something to to improve the, the numbers of workers that they can recruit. I mean, they've been. I'm sure your your listeners will have seen stories of kind of farmers having to leave fruit to rot in the fields because there's nobody to pick fruit. Mm. You know, there's nobody to, to to pick that produce and to get it onto shelves. So it has all kinds of knock on knock on impacts. And of course, this is a consequence of immigration policies themselves being at the heart of uh, the Brexit promise. So um, there was a lot of discussion at the very outset and trying to canvas for um, a departure from the EU about how this would change their policies in a positive way. So, you know, just tell us how important that immigration policy bit has been to kind of the UK and sort of offering Brexit as a panacea. What were they promising? Right. I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert on immigration policy, but certainly the government wanted to prioritize highly skilled immigration and they wanted to reduce the numbers of lower skilled uh, EU migrants coming in. So um, the, the problem with that is that, as I say, you know, a lot of these sectors relied on mm. uh, a steady stream of labor from Europe. You know, before there was no need for visas, the borders were completely open, so workers could come and go, and they could come just for very short, you know, bursts of, of time. For example, harvest season, they could come to pick fruit, um, and the UK economy has for years relied on that labour. And so, you know, industries will be set up on the basis of the reliance on that, you know, ready availability of of labour supply. And the government has made some concessions. For certain sectors, um, skill, you know, where there are shortages. But I think what a lot of industry is saying is that those are not going far enough, mm. uh, you know, to deal with, with some of these issues. And spawned quite a lot of mean-spirited initiatives as well along the way, which may have affected, and I think actually I think it has affected, uh, a lot of uh, the UK's place in the world and how they're seen because they've always, up until Brexit at least, been seen as, you know, the epitome of probity and and good behaviour, if you like. But how has their reputation um, on the international world stage been affected by um, the developments which Brexit has brought? So I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the relationship with the EU, for example. How has that manifested itself over the last couple of years? Well, I think, 
International observers have, have looked at this and seen certainly the way the previous administration um, were quite combative in their, relations, in, in their relations with the EU. And the EU is the UK's single most important trading partner, right? So mm. about half of UK goods exports go to the EU. And, and again, the UK imports about half of, of, or half of its imports come from the EU. So if you're another country, you're looking at this and saying, well, if that's the way uh, the UK government is treating its most important trading partner, then it doesn't fill me with much confidence of how, you know, they may treat treat me as a, mm. as a third country in a negotiation. It's true that the current administration, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, uh, Finance Minister Jeremy Hunt, Kimi Badenoch, are viewed as as perhaps um, having friendlier relations with the EU. I think that is true. Uh, so, so we kind of wait to see if if things might improve. But I do think that some of the um, prevaricating over certain, you know, key tenants of the, of the of the Brexit deal, the government going back on certain things, and of course, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is not something I I, I can discuss in detail, but that has been a very big issue, and it was something that um, the previous government wanted to kind of go back on and they wanted to change uh, certain provisions that they had agreed to in the Brexit deal after the fact. So again, you know, if you're a, a country thinking, well, is the UK just going to sort of go go back against, you know, things mm. that they've agreed to in a deal? Again, that doesn't fill you with, with much confidence, not to mention kind of all the chaos we saw last year, um, you, you know, around uh, Prime Minister Liz Truss and and uh, Kwasi Kwarteng and their kind of plan for growth in the UK and how the markets responded to that. I think that's made things worse, but that's that's obviously, you know, somewhat separate to Brexit. But I, I think um, I think that the way the UK has handled itself in Brexit negotiations uh, w- wouldn't fill, wouldn't fill future trade partners with with a great deal of, of confidence. Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and I'm talking to Hannah Ziddy of the CNN Business Unit in London, and she covers markets, economies, and companies across Europe. And we're talking about the effect of Brexit on the UK. You mentioned there now, just before uh, we stopped talking, the ability of the UK to uh, look to other countries, non-EU countries for trade deals, again, promising a lot, a big emphasis on a potential trade deal with the likes of Australia and US. How did that work out for them? Right. So this was one, this was going to be one of the big wins opportunities of Brexit was the, the, the freedom to strike trade deals around the world. The only substantive new trade deals that the UK has struck since leaving the European Union, and by substantive new deals, I mean deals that didn't just roll over the deals it already had as an EU member, have been with Australia and New Zealand. Now, and it is in talks, it's true, uh, you know, with India to strike a deal. It hopes to accede to uh, a trade partnership, uh, the CPTPP, uh, the, you know, Transatlantic Trade Partnership. So there are some others in the works. But let's look at Australia and New Zealand because those are the deals that have been signed. By the government's own estimate, these will increase GDP, UK GDP, in the long run by just 0.1% Australia and 0.03% New Zealand. Mm. Now, by comparison, uh, the, 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 the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is you know the, uh, produces economic forecasts for the government, they think that Brexit, or to be you know more specific, the UK's new trading relationship with the EU, they think that's going to reduce output by four percent mm. over fifteen years compared to remaining in the bloc. So. 
there you have it. You know, deals with, with Australia and New Zealand will increase GDP negligibly in, in the next, in the years to come, whereas leaving the EU is going to uh, be a, a severe drag on, on GDP. Mm. Now, the Eurozone itself, in terms of uh, its economic prospects, seems to suggest that they might escape recession, uh, at least in 2023. But how is the UK comparing in comparison to, to the EU on that recessionary front? Right. So we had some fresh data out this week that's, that speaks to this exact point. And of course, you know, the, the whole world economy is facing a very tough year. It's not just the UK. Um, you know, growth is, is forecast to be weak everywhere. Although, again, you know, even, even that has kind of changed in the last few weeks. Uh, some business leaders uh, are becoming a little bit more optimistic and economists. But data out this week suggests that uh, at, at least if we just look at January, um, that activity in manufacturing and in services in the EU is looking stronger. It, uh, the data indicated the first expansion in activity in those sectors since June. Uh, and so, you know, e- economists seem to think, well, actually, maybe the Eurozone, and when we talk about the, the Eurozone, we just mean the 20 countries in Europe that use the euro as their currency. Um, that sort of led some economists to say, well, you know, the Eurozone, Eurozone could actually avoid a recession this year. Now, the same survey um, for the UK showed that uh, the manufacturing and service sectors, so sort of tracks activity, showed the steepest decline in business activity since national COVID lockdowns of two years ago. So the Mm. picture is looking far less promising for the year in the United Kingdom, Um, kind of, again, underscoring the risk of the UK slipping into recession. I will add, though, that despite the kind of gloomy start to the year, um, the the business uh, executives that are surveyed for this data do kind of are, or are a little bit more optimistic about about the outlook. Mm. So so they're kind of hoping that well, if the global economy improves, which it seems like it might, and if inflation cools, which it looks like it may be doing, and you know then the Bank of England won't have to hike interest rates so aggressively. If that happens, then you know, then the outlook for the UK will look better. So we wait and see. I mean, it's too early it's to too make early. Maybe, <laughs> Maybe that little bit of political stability that you talked about earlier is making a contribution to business sentiment and that's a good thing. Finally, Hannah, and just very briefly, can I ask you, like, what's the people's sentiment about Brexit now, three years on? Well, polling by YouGov sort of suggests that I, I think that the, the term that's been that's been given to it is is regret or regret that there's some regret among the British public about voting for Brexit. I'm sure that's not true for everybody, but I do think that a lot of people feel that this was not what they had voted mm. for, or they didn't fully appreciate what you know Brexit would mean, and in fact, you know, in hindsight, feel like maybe. Maybe they don't want Brexit after all. But there's very little they can do about it now and that spirit of keep calm and carry on is certainly there. Hannah, we spend an awful lot of time here in Ireland talking about the protocol um, and the Good Friday Agreement and what that means uh, in the context of Brexit. So it's very nice to be able to stand back and look dispassionately at the wider view of this with you. So thank you very much for taking the time to spend with us today. That's Hannah Ziddy, uh, who works for CNN Business in London and she covers markets, economy, and companies across Europe there. Hannah, thank you very much.
Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, where we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Next week, commercial property, is it about to hit a slump? And why are we so fussy about who pays for it here in Ireland? If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks to all of today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with all of your Sunday newspapers and on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.